Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Charlotte. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demyth Tansa Page. Our special episodes where we consume knowledge. We count calories in hardbacks and paperbacks. And we talk to our amazing guest, Sunny Dean, about their novel, The Book Eaters. Hi, Sunny. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you for having me and writing up all the questions. The packaging from when you sent me the book is the best packaging I've ever had. Literally just like plastic and duct tape. It's the sort of thing I would do. Like I use Christmas wrapping paper all year round. So I had so much respect for that. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I do reuse (laughs) stuff. Um, I just moved house and I had loads of plastic sheeting lying around I can't even remember what it was for it came in some oh yeah wrapped mattresses I think so everybody who got an arc at that time period had loads of plastic wrapped books <laughs> I thought it was hilarious I, I loved it before we get started on the actual book will you please tell our listeners about yourself uh, I'm an autistic sci-fi and fantasy writer mostly fantasy and um, I was born in Texas and I kind of grew up in Hong Kong I moved here for university and I've stayed put and I enjoy reading and writing most genres, but particularly fantasy. And um, I also love whiskey. So I think I'll, you know, be a good fit for your podcast. (laughs) Whiskey and cocktails. (laughs) I do have a cocktail as we speak. It's summer, yeah. I'm drinking marshmallow cider, which I've never had before, but it looks very sugary. So I thought I'd give it a go. (laughs) It is insanely pink. It is. Is it good? That's what we want to know. It's okay. I don't think I'd write home about it. I think the toffee apple is better. As you say, you like to read fantasy. Are there any particular standout books that you've had recently or favourite books that you can mention to our listeners? Uh, Oh, there's quite a few. I think Final Strife is quite good. That's um, by Sarah El Arifi and it's very recently out. If you like epic fantasy, uh, that's got a kind of Arabian feel to it. She's Arabian and North African it's it's really fantastic um and I think uh for more traditional fantasy I guess I really enjoyed Just as a Kings which is also out earlier this year um by Richard Swan and that's like Sherlock Holmes meets the Witcher kind of deal is also a lot of fun I don't know if you do sci-fi I always recommend The Echo Wife to people I think that was a fantastic book <laughs> I wouldn't say sci-fi is our thing, but, you know, always open to reading Well, if you do get the chance, it's about a a woman scientist who discovers that her husband is cheating on her with a clone that he made using her stolen research. And it's just kind of got a funny Killing Eve black comedy vibe. So I've got questions. If you were going to cheat, why would you cheat on someone who is exactly (laughs) the same? (laughs) Because he can can program her clone to be more malleable and less difficult. Uh, Okay. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. What do men want more than a malleable wife? <laughs> it's interesting as well that you mentioned the final strife because she might be coming on next month. Oh, Sarah is the nicest person ever. You'll love her. We met her at Yalk earlier this year and she was she was so lovely. I didn't know she was at Yalk. I completely passed, bypassed her. So let's talk about the cover. I really, really like the the font, the house. So is the house the manor that Devon grew up in? I'm not actually sure. I didn't talk to Harper in a lot about the cover. I think 
it could either work as her house or it could work as Traquair, but it doesn't much it doesn't look a lot like Traquair, so it's probably Devon's house. I assumed it was Devon's house. Yeah. Very gothic y and kind of crumbling. The cover is so different to to anything I think I've seen before. The way you've got the sort of text in the background from from a book and then it sort of looks ripped and then you have the the title in the house. It's the cover's absolutely stunning. I loved it. I think the art is for the American version is very pretty, but I I do like graphic text covers a lot. So the UK one to me looked amazing. I'm, I'm glad someone else did it because I can't do any kind of design. So uh, it would have just been like words on a blank background if it was left to me. How does it feel for you to see your book in physical form finally? I only got to see mine yesterday, actually. My my American copies were really slow to arrive and the UK copies aren't here yet, but it is, it's kind of surreal. Uh, it's thinner than I thought it would be, given that everyone's always like, oh no, you've got to keep your word count under 100k. And then I think mine was 110. And then the book is like, I don't know. It's not very, it's not very thick when you actually see it compared to a lot of other books on the table. It was nice. They have a nice tactile cover, if that matters to you. I think I think some people are cover rubbers. I'm a cover rubber. And before we get into your book, if you were to eat a story for the rest of your life, which story and what would it taste like? Can it be nonfiction? It could be anything. This answer always sounds pretentious, but I would probably pick uh, the history of Western philosophy because it's a really, really interesting book, but it's very long. It's very funny. It's very accessible and it has so much wisdom and so much so many observations in it from Bertrand Russell. And I think that would keep me going for a, a few, fair few years. Do you have an idea of what it would taste like? Oh, I think it'd be all over the map. I'm not sure. Someone, No one's ever asked me that before. I've not thought about it. <laughs> be like a charcuterie board <laughs> in book form. Yeah, maybe something like that. Every every bit of it's maybe a little bit different. Is that how you pronounce that word? That's how I pronounce it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you tried to pronounce it and not me. So to introduce all of our listeners to the book who maybe aren't familiar and have missed the fact that it is all over Instagram and this is release week or we'll be releasing it in release week. So we're pretending. Hidden across England and Scotland live six old book eater families. The last of their lines, they exist on the fringes of society and subsist on a diet of stories and legends. Children are rare and their numbers have dwindled. So when Devon Fairweather's second child is born a dreaded mind eater, a perversion of her own kind, who consumes not stories, but the minds and souls of humans, she flees before he can be turned into a weapon for the family. Or worse, living among humans and finding prey for her son, Devon seeks a cure for his hunger. But time is running out, for her family want her back. And with every soul her son consumes, he loses a little more of himself. This is a story of escape, a savage mother's devotion and a queer love that will electrify readers looking for something beguiling, thrilling, strange and new. Where did the inspiration for the book come from? I think inspiration is a really complicated thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was always interested in the ethical dilemma of vampires. I remember someone on Twitter basically saying, you can't do vampires anymore they're dead everything that has can be said about them has been said uh they're so overdone and just reading that thinking oh no i don't agree with that at all 
uh, I think the ethical dilemma of you have to do something evil to survive is always interesting to me. And we only explore kind of one type of vampire, but there are hundreds and thousands through human history, lots of different myths for every culture. So that kind of sense from it came about. And I think just the way we think about books, we already talk about them as food, like they're sweet or they're spicy or they're bittersweet. Um, and for most people who read books, it's maybe a natural leap to to think of them as something we consume because we kind of do in an abstract sense. Um, and I guess one of the other things is I've encountered a few people who have a form of synesthesia where books have a taste to them. Um, there's an editor on Twitter who talks about it, different books that she acquires have a taste to her. There's a man, I can't remember where he is. I think he's in Yorkshire. He owns a tea company and he makes tea that tastes like fairy tales that he's read and stuff like that. that I just find really interesting. So lots of bits and pieces, a little bit of manga as well. There's a, a, a book eater's manga, completely different content, but you know, it has people who eat books in it. Well, that's really interesting. I've never heard of synthesia with taste. I've only ever associated it with music and colours. So that's quite interesting. I'm going to have to Google it. It sounds strange. I, I don't know if I would want want it. How did you name your characters? Uh, so the characters in Book Eaters largely have location names. And I think they mention it once as being a tradition. But for me, I wanted names that sounded familiar, but weren't quite right. So Devon, Ike, Ramsey, Victoria is a bit cheaty, but it is a place. Um Jero, these are all places in the UK, so they don't sound unfamiliar, but they also don't sound like anyone you'd ever meet, if that makes sense. So they don't have like, I don't know, Tolkien-esque fantasy names. They're not like Balramir kind of out there stuff, but they 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 don't sound quite like people. <laughs> I think if you met just one of them, they don't stand out from humans, but when they all have like these slightly odd names, they're a little bit, a little bit unusual. Uh, and then the surnames were just, they're all compound ones that were put together like Fairweather, Easterbrook, Winterfield. In the book, there are six families of book eaters. And in the UK, would there have originally been more families? Yeah, there were originally a lot more. And when I first envisioned the scope of the book, it was more international, um, including an arc in Japan, because the Japanese book eaters had actually found ways to manage their infertility and their mind eaters and stuff like that. And um there was a bigger kind of scene for it, but the book just suffered from too much content. Um, and I did assume it would be a series initially. It won't be now, but it just, lots of stuff was put aside or cut because it didn't serve the arc that I was looking at, which was Devon's personal arc, or there just wasn't space without bogging it down and making it a thousand pages long. <laughs> so I guess we can assume then that if you look outside the UK, there mm. are families in other countries too. Yeah, there would be, yes. Different kinds. Our story starts with Devon in a shop and we quickly learn that she has a son but has no birth certificate, no passport and and the son Kai has no ID. Was it important to indicate that even at the beginning she can run away but only so far? Um, so I'd hoped originally that Devon actually escaped the country over the course of the book and that just didn't fit within the scope. But for me it was... A, I suppose it's more a moment to show that Devon doesn't quite belong in society, that if you push her a little bit, you discover she doesn't have the things that other people have. And she can't apply for them either because she's not able to write. And she's just a little bit too early. If she had been about 20 years in the future, all this stuff would be electronic and she would actually have an easier time in some ways. Uh, but at that point, when it's set in the early 2000s, 
she has no documentation and can't get any. Again, we learn pretty quickly that Devon has a son who, at the beginning, it's alluded to that he's pretty dangerous. And this sets us up for quite a dark story. So was it your intention for me? My interpretation was I learned about Kai before I learned about Devon being a book eater. I guess that's a craft choice. So Kai has all the conflict and initially the conflict and motivation is tied up with his character. So I think I did put that front and center just so that people kind of see it, I guess, as a hook or an introduction to the kind of story that's going to be. Um, I know some readers are less keen on that, that they wanted more about the book eaters and less about the mind eaters. Uh, and I com- I do understand that. But basically, yeah, it was a choice for me. The book eaters are a backdrop almost rather than being the focus. So as you mentioned, we have book eaters, mind eaters, knights and dragons. The book eaters, as named, eat books for meals and each book tastes different. There's a quote that all Devon ate was fairy tales, but each tasted different. And was it quite a fun idea for you to associate different genres of books to different tastes? It is fun. Um, It was also a little challenging because book eaters don't know what human food tastes like. So I can't just say this book tastes like cake when cake doesn't really taste like anything to them. I think the closest I got to the food references at one point, Devon tries wine and I think, and she says it tastes like a romance novel. But otherwise, if the, the descriptions had to be a bit unusual in themselves um, and more kind of smell-based. I'm sure Devon is not the only person that thinks that wine tastes <laughs> like a romance novel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. So you've already mentioned it, but why can't book eaters write? If they consume so many words and so much language, What what's stopping them from learning to write? Um, the closest thing I would allude it to is autistic people who are non-speaking or people who have selective mutism where they know language and they know words and they have functioning vocal cords but they're not able to join up the cognitive processes which allow them to make language or allow them to make and for the book eaters that's happening as well where they just anything that they interpret as writing um, their brain wiring just doesn't allow to happen in, in craft terms, it was a choice that I made, very cynically, because I think if the book eaters could write, they would have no reason to interact with humans at all. They would just hide in the mountains forever, writing books for themselves. Mm. But I think in story terms as well, they need a reason to go out and seek books. They can't just sit there like writing rubbish poetry to keep themselves alive or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> they've got to go out and, and see other things, you know, collect knowledge that they, they need and store that for themselves. I have to say, I used to write a lot of very mopey teenage poetry, (laughs) and I don't think that would taste very good. (laughs) I think we all had that face. (laughs) I think they would have starved if that's what they had to live on. (laughs) So around page 19, Devon says that reading is shameful. But why is reading shameful if the sole reason the book eaters are created is to consume knowledge? Because um, the knowledge that they read, it doesn't stay in their minds. Anything they eat is kind of there forever, um, like almost stored in a computer, whereas our memories are imperfect. If we read things, we remember the general sense of a book, but very few people will, will remember it word for word in all of the text and everything that happened. And Devin, I think Devin is kind of aware of that, where she's like, well, we're not collecting for any reason anymore. It's very stupid. But they kind of cling to these traditions and they cling to them well past the point that they're effective or pointful. So Charlotte finished the book before I did. 
And I remember messaging her. This is really on. This is really early on in the book. And Devin goes into Uncle Ike. How do you Ike? I think so. It's a it's a place. Yeah, I think it's Ike. Okay, Uncle Ike's room. And she wanted to take something from the top shelf, which was forbidden. And I messaged her like, "What smart has Uncle Ike got on the top shelf?" And then she pulls off Jane Eyre, and I was like, "What Jane Eyre?" So why do you think Jane Eyre would have been on the top shelf? Because that's not um, what I was expecting she was going to pull up, pull out. Um, do you like Do you like Jane Eyre? Like, have you read it or? And if I have to admit, I got bored. <laughs> I, I got bored early on. I needed to get past the boring bit where she's at the school, I think, and get into the okay. more nitty gritty of the story possibly against the general trend i don't really like the bit with rochester i i preferred i guess the earlier bits but when i read that book as a child i thought it was very it's a story of a woman who's very rebellious she grows up and she's just she's in constant conflict with her family her school her all the people around her uh and she really builds herself out of nothing and becomes like this better person and only accepts things on her own terms and the whole stuff with mr rochester you know jane era she's given the choice to basically live as his mistress and she's like gives him the middle finger and, and walks off into poverty rather than, than put up with that. So I think the story of her being rebellious and walking away from things would be dangerous for reading for a book eater girl. Uh, and Ike is kind of possibly aware of that. It doesn't, it's not a mentality they want to encourage. Um, Cause at least in the first half, Jane is very vengeful and she really holds a grudge about everything. <laughs> um, she grows into a different person, but yeah, uh, I think certainly for the time it was written and even now, Jane's story is very much about empowerment. I might have to give it another go, but that makes sense actually why they wouldn't want a Bukita girl to read it when you start to find out more about what the life of a Bukita girl is like. It is 280,000 words. So if you're not feeling the writing style, you can probably just like watch a film or something and get the same effect, get the same story. It's very long. <laughs> Devon and Kai are in Newcastle upon Tyne when they meet Hester. Why did you pick a Newcastle? Because I can't think of many books that are set in Newcastle. Uh, I picked a lot of places that I like or know or have been to. Um, I like Newcastle. I originally wanted to have part of the book set in Berwick or on Holy Island because those are some of my favorite places but it didn't fit and I think Newcastle is a good point because it's sort of on the edge of um, England and Scotland and it's not very far to go so geographically it worked and the timings worked and it's sort of the last big city of the north on that side of the coast and it has a great vibe as well just it's a really cool place. I've never been. I'm not sure if this is a spoiler yet so if it is let me know and we'll We'll come back to it later. But why does Uncle Ike not acknowledge he's Devon's father? Uh, he just doesn't want to give any weight to that relationship. I think he has an awareness she might treat him differently or seize on it or that he might behave differently. And he doesn't want that kind of bond between them. He wants more distance. Um, but I know I'm aware that Luton, Devon's husband, you can cut this if it's a spoiler, does, you know, he does acknowledge Salem and he's very open about the fact that he's a father, um, which doesn't get addressed in this book. But there is a kind of thing about that there. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's a spoiler. One of the characters, Jarrow, des describes asexual feelings. And Devon discloses that she feels attracted to women, but she doesn't really know. She's not quite sure. Was 
this important for you to include? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of my friends are autistic and a lot of autistic people are asexual. It's very, really common to have spec friends. And I wanted to have a kind of character in for them because I think it's not done very much. I mean, I was doing the research, like even in their time period, asexual was still like a term. People talked about it, used it. Uh, it just wasn't very visible. Um, and it was a kind of nod to all of those friends in my life who, who don't see themselves that often in the book. I can't write from that experience, so I can't give that to a main character, I don't feel. But it felt appropriate for like one of Devon's friends to have that conversation with her. And then I ran it through a lot of Ace Beta readers as well because I was so concerned about getting it right and the conversation between them. For Devon's side, yeah, I just felt like it didn't, I think my default is kind of sapphic. There has to be a really strong plot reason for why a a character would be straight or (laughs) otherwise I feel like I'm putting it in. Yeah, I think it was important for me to present things I see as norm. I think most autistic people are queer in some respect. Um, I can only think of a handful who would say that they're straight. I'm here for all of the sapphic characters. I want more sapphic characters in everything. Sapphic fantasy is like my go-to. It's having a heyday, which is amazing as well. I stand by it as a genre, 100%. Early on, Devon describes the princesses in her books as being delicate, pretty things. But she describes herself as a six-foot-tall murderess with a penchant... uh, How do you... Penchant? How do you pronounce it? Penchant? Penchant? I don't know. Oh my God, I say penchant. Pen- Is it penchant? I have no idea. Oh. It's so much easier when you're typing it and then you have to actually say what you've written. Um, with a penchant for short off hair <laughs> and leather jackets. Was it fun for you to play with stereotypes? Uh, so Devon's dress sense is kind of a, a tribute to the late 90s grunge, um, which occasionally, when I can be bothered, I still, you know, will occasionally dress like that and I think it's fun um I think it's a good look and yeah she you know she is tall because I think I get I guess a bit grumpy where um women aren't allowed to be kind of tall or butch except in like sapphic fantasy where they are um I'm not going to name the novel but I remember years ago I read a novel it had a tall female MC and she meets the the other main character who's a guy and he's just ever so slightly taller because they've always got to be. Um, and that always used to just bug me. That's like <laughs> such a running trope that however tall the woman is, her male love interest is ever so slightly taller. Devin gets to be taller than everybody in this book. I would love to be tall. <laughs> so a, a little bit of, I guess, a shout out for all the women who ever wanted to be six foot Amazonian, butch lesbians. <laughs> I think quite a few of us have that dream. We read a book for the podcast where she deliberately made her female main character taller than him, taller than the her love interest. Was it Hall of, um, Hall of Smoke by any chance? No, it was Pandora. Oh, okay. I've not heard of that one. So like Georgian historical fiction with some sort of Greek Ooh. influence. It's very good. It's an interesting mix. It's very cool. We liked it. Mm. And we liked the fact that she made that choice as well. The book describes that Mesopotamia and Babylonia depict blood-sucking creatures who feast on the young. Is this fact or fiction? I'm guessing it's true because you talked about... It is true. So all the bits of information that um, Amarinder puts in the the kind of epigraphs, the chapters, they are true. They're all... um, Every culture 
that we have written records for going back to this ancient Sumerians have their own kind of vampiric legends and myths. Not all of them are blood-sucking, a lot of them are. Um, I think vampiric in the sense is defined as like they draw essence or life from you. Uh, and there's huge variety. It's really interesting. It's really scary, actually. It does almost make you wonder what was going on. That We <laughs> we all had these myths just that, that, pers- that persevere throughout the centuries of human existence. Throughout the book, we have two points of views. We have Devon and we have Ramsey. Why did you include two? So the book was originally only Devon. Um, when I handed it into my agent and went on submission and Tor picked it up, it was all Devon. But I just got to this point where I was struggling with the narrative. I think there's, for me, there's a mark about 60 or 70% where the, the narrative is kind of laboring against itself a bit. And it's just because Devon doesn't know so much of what's going on. And the solution that I came up with, I guess quite late actually during the editing process, was to add in chapters that belong to Ramsey. And it did shortcut a lot of things for me and mean I didn't have to contort the whole story to, to fill in some blanks. Um, but I do think Ramsey was fun and I enjoyed his kind of, he was a nice change, I guess, after a few years of working only in Devon's point of view to have someone where I could be in a close point of view and a different voice was a breath of fresh air. I quite like multiple points of view in a book. I think it's when it's done well, it works really well. Yes, I, I love that as well. Uh, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like multiple point of view fantasy. Um, it's very common in epic fantasy. Are you happy for me to read from the book yeah better you than me (laughs) oh well that means there's a name I have to pronounce which I'm not sure how to pronounce but it's one of my favorite lines from the book and it's it's the sort of thing you would expect a man to say (laughs) and it's such a misogynistic line but it sort of made me chuckle a little bit and it's Uncle Ike talking to Devon it's like your dear aunt Balua um Balua yeah your dear aunt Balua is rather a killjoy these days it's a bit too much women's fiction. You know how it is. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> oh, he's just so casually condescending as Ike. Um, he was fun in his own way. <laughs> I thought that line was hilarious because it's so believable. The same way that people are quite judgy about women's magazines and sort mm. of romantic fiction and like chiclet is seen as not a, a good thing for a book to be. It is, yeah. And I've heard people say almost exactly that phrase, actually, just in a very different context. Um, in fact, I think I saw yesterday on Facebook, someone made a comment about, you know, you know chiclet. Why Why does that exist? Don't they just have glossy magazines? Yes, yeah, like, oh, most of these things exist because there is not space for women in other places. So anyway. <laughs> that sort of sounds like something that Uncle Ike would say. Yeah. This is the point of the episode where if you haven't read the book, but now you really want to, you should stop listening. Come back once you've read the book, because we're moving into spoilers, where nothing is off limits. And that does include the ending. So we find out that Book Eaters were created by The Collector, which was an extraterrestrial being who created them to look humanoid and place them on Earth for the purpose of gathering knowledge by both book eating and mind eating or sampling human experiences. What does the collector get? How does the collector get this knowledge from the book and mind eaters? So a couple of things. So when I first wrote the book, the book eaters themselves and some the different families had different ideas on their origins and none of them were sure. 
Um, and as I simplified the book, because it was initially too complex, the manuscript, and there was just too many things going on, um, I made the, I put the collector in as kind of the most plausible, but still slightly ridiculous backstory and didn't confirm or deny it. Because if you confirm it, then people argue with it. But if you leave it as a suggestion, people are, are less kind of resistant to it. I don't know why. <laughs> Um, but the, the other part of it is most of the lore never made it into the book because it would have detracted too much from the very tight emotional arc. But as I envisioned it when I was writing it, the mind eaters are kind of the data vaults and they collect their own kind. They collect the book eaters. They're just more populous than they should be now and, and things aren't working for their species as they should. Um, it never. I never worked out what the collector gets from his knowledge, uh, just that he does or it does. Um, and the book eaters never find him because he never comes, it, he, she, whatever it is, never comes back. So that's a fancy way of saying I don't actually know <laughs> if that's okay to admit to. Well, that leaves it open for a prequel. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a bit weird. I'm sort of... Uh, I'm required by tour to basically do standalones at the moment, but when that contract is complete, then we can look again at like other books in the same world. So never say never. Yes. If there are only six families left, how is inbreeding avoided? Because I know in the story it says that knights take effort to ensure it doesn't happen, but the gene pool is so small. And I was trying to work out that if, they're having a baby here and then they're going here and having a baby and it it got really complicated. Yeah, incredibly, I do have a spreadsheet for it that I made ages ago with the help of a friend who can actually do maths. Um, I'm not the maths doing statistic, <laughs> I missed that skill somewhere. Uh, but I worked it out, I think, from like how many generations they'd have and they basically would bring in new families. When Britain was kind of colonial, they were going abroad and bringing back new families to merge with their own um, that's stopped in modern times it's very difficult to go across borders now but effectively they are suffering from inbreeding and that's part of why mind eaters are so populous they shouldn't be uh, and they're really kind of struggling with that basically so they don't i think i can't remember if i go into i think a lot of that got cut but basically at one point in one of the drafts someone tells devon that they have like two generations left and then they're totally screwed I think they hint at it by saying there's only seven or something like that. It's very... Yeah, you mentioned about there's six brides and then Devon sort of thinks, oh, with my daughter, that would be seven. Yes, that's right, six or seven. I, um, I forget the number sometimes because they did change. I, you know, through, I did so many revisions, but yes, that's right. Um, it's low. There's just not very many. <laughs> it's like a worryingly low number. Yeah, I think, I mean, they're kind of cracking in the book. It doesn't go into it because Devon isn't interested in that, but the whole IVF thing that they're working on and stuff like that um, is kind of in the background there for them. Well, before we get on to that, I just wanted to sort of say, well, girls are treated as very precious because there are so few families and the struggles that they have with fertility. But then what actually happens to them is is quite horrific because they seem mm. to be highly regarded until the point they're married off and they have a child. Then they're expected to leave their child and just do the process all over again. And it just seems so ruthless after spending a lifetime telling them, or, well, we see Devon's point of view. So them telling Devon in particular that she's a princess and she's precious. I'm just, 
I'm just sort of curious, like, yeah, where that sort of came from exactly, the sort of real difference from, oh, you're so precious, you're this princess, to her, like, the answer just completely shot away and almost ignored. Um, it comes from fairy tales itself. It, I mean, some of the book, I guess, is maybe a little abstract or meta in that sense, but that is essentially what happens in fairy tales. The the princesses are very prized, they're very sought after, Um they're, they're, they live a life of privilege, but not really a life that's very free. And then the moment they're married, the story ends and they basically don't exist and they don't matter. They're just written off. And the next story about the next princess is what matters and what is brought out. Um, and I guess there's a little bit, I remember talking with um, a Pakistani friend ages ago from school um, about the differences between how marriage is seen in cultures. Um, and in the West, marriage is kind of seen as like the end uh, you get married and that's the highest point of your life. And then you settle down to being boring and everyone forgets you kind of, uh, but in like Indian and Pakistani cultures, your life doesn't start until you get married. Um, you kind of like a non-entity and then you get married and you can join in on society. And it's just a very different perspective. I think that sense of like your life stops when you get married, um, is very present in fairy tales um, and for Devon and her society, the sense of like, okay, your purpose is this. And once you fulfilled it, you're just not valuable anymore. I felt so bad for Devon. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I just wanted to give her a hug. I did. I wanted to give her a hug. Do you think the book eaters will ever adequately adapt IVF to help their kind? And I find it quite interesting that these creatures would look to human medicine to help them and not create something of their own. Uh, bearing in mind I'm not a doctor I can't think of any reason why the same techniques wouldn't work for them um, I think eventually the book eaters would just have to step out into the open and that that's going to have to be their in-game solution is admitting they exist <laughs> um, otherwise long term they just really can't stay alive do you think that they'd ever breed with humans I'd written them as not being able to I hadn't thought about whether they could Sorry, do you need more on that? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> Devon has a hard time leaving her daughter Salem to the point where Luton has to lie to her and says she can stay only to drug her and move her while she's knocked out, which is awful. But what would have been the harm in her staying and having a second child with Luton, for example? Why? What was the need for moving to a different family and having one there? Uh, so the issues are that crop up for book eaters is they do have their problems with inbreeding. One of the ways they try and circumnavigate that is how they share out the, the brides. Um, they, the marriages themselves are very political and will have been arranged years in advance, probably by the Knights. Everything is done through contract. Everything is enforced very strictly. The Knights draw their power from enforcing those marriages and not letting things slide, basically. But Devon's complaint is essentially that, is it, would there have been that much harm in the long run? Possibly not, but she wasn't given that option or that say to make her case. Um, and money has already changed hands, so it's all said and done by the time it gets around to um, her part in it. At the beginning of the book, we know that Kai can be dangerous when hungry. So Devon stalks and hunts people for Kai to eat, but she avoids feeding women to Kai. Is this possibly because she grew up being told that women were precious and she says she finds it easier to sympathise with people from people of the same gender? I think it's partly that 
she's used to seeing men as being aggressors in her life. Women are kind of on the same side. There's a sense from her that she doesn't want to kind of betray her people who are in her class, essentially, to the same machine. There's maybe something there about the ways in which women feed each other to the patriarchy. Uh, I think you can, there's some really interesting rad film stuff about how and why women do that. Um, Sorry, that's getting way into feminism, but basically, uh, you know, in in a patriarchal setting, women will betray each other or sell each other out or reinforce misogyny because they think it'll get them higher social status in a system that's not very fair. Um, and there's something a little bit there where Devon's not willing to <laughs> sacrifice women to feed Kai or to feed, you know, he is part of that system, even if unintentionally. Um, but a lot of it, yeah, she just, she can relate to women better and she feels sorry for them, I think. You're more than welcome to get into feminism. We are. <laughs> <laughs> and she also grapples with the guilt of what she has to do. But ultimately, her motherly instinct to feed him it does win out as as you would sort of expect that it would and did you write the guilt to humanize her i know i just thought it was interesting to be honest i think um i think it's an interesting moral dilemma and i think one of the things i wanted to look at is how devon talks herself out of guilt because i think that's a very human reaction she she would rather do something wrong and feel sad about it later than change what she's doing um and i know she doesn't have much choice with with kai but i think humans are like that you know we'd rather do the thing and then feel guilty than than do it right the first time and it just gives her something you know she thinks about it she thinks about things too much and she thinks about the things that she's doing and the impacts it has um hopefully the reader can think about them through her as well i did find it interesting that she she will ask if someone is a good person right before she feeds them to Kai, but it doesn't stop her from doing it. Yes. Um, she keeps saying, oh, I know this is wrong, but I have to do it and I have no choice. And then she does it anyway. And there's, I don't know. So maybe you wonder, I think, I hope that people will wonder sometimes how much Devon is telling a narrative to herself that she can accept about herself um, and how much, is just she actually doesn't have a choice i just thought if someone was genuinely like i don't know say right say she saw someone attacking a woman on a street like a man was trying mm. to sexually assault a woman for example and somehow she managed to get this man back to the flat to feed him to kai is the fact that he's not a very good person would that maybe put her off because on the one hand, uh, yeah. it's good that she's getting rid of him as a menace to society. But also, would she want that kind of bad influence in her son? I don't know. Yeah, she can't. So he will take on the personality of the, mm. the people that he eats. So um, she can't use him like Dexter <laughs> to, to eliminate people who are kind of not very nice because Kyle will be very nice. Um, and since this, this, since this is the spoiler section, that is the biggest issue with the ending where Kai basically eats Ramsay because he he's changed forever by that and not in a good way. I quite liked when he started saying things that some of his meals would have said. Like when you see yeah. him saying, oh, I really like Coronation Street. She's like, you've never seen an episode. Well, <laughs> oh, that's a tiny easy <laughs> I've never seen an episode of Coronation Street either. <laughs> 
for me, it was when she said that as he was starting to like be a toddler and he would just be by her ear and like nibble her ear. <laughs> just really, that was just really creepy. <laughs> she was a good mom to him considering like she, that was the point where she was like, oh no, better feed you. <laughs> yes. Well, good for a given value of good. We learn in the book that one of the families created a drug that quells the need, but not the want to eat humans. This drug is called Redemption. And it reminded me of True Blood. I don't know if you ever saw that, where they created synthetic blood for the vampires. I've never seen it, sorry. Well, maybe it might be your thing. I'm not sure. But I got really into it a few years ago. And the premise is that the vampires are are out people and they're around in society and there's this it almost looks like beer bottles and it's synthetic blood that they can in so that they don't attack humans it's trash if you read the book they're absolute trash but i loved them oh, okay about reading the books <laughs> i don't know i don't i don't i guess i don't buy into like trash is no, i know what you mean by like that description but um I guess I'm just a bit leery. A lot of times people say something is like trash when what they mean is like it's written for women. <laughs> I'm just a bit leery of the description. Like something's entertaining and commercial and that's fantastic. Um, and I'm sure the author can wipe her tears away with money. <laughs> well, I spent all, all of are- my money on it, so it doesn't really matter because I still bought them. <laughs> Ramsey and Devon work together to find the raven, sc- raven scars. We learn throughout the book that they developed the Raven Scars, d- developed redemption, and then there was a coup and they seemed to hide away. And Devon meets Hester, one of the family, and she takes Devon to them. And I got cult vibes. The family were made yes. up of mind eaters, and we learn Hester herself was one. And we see that with redemption, that they can manage their urges. But did you imagine? when you were writing the scene, a kind of commune, because that's the vibe that I got. It was kind of a culty commune hippie place for outcasts. Yeah. Um, very much the kind of, they're like the outcasts and they become very tightly knit by the the things that they've jointly done together, which are not nice. Um, I think, I guess maybe it's more commentary in humans. I think humans tend to create those kinds of structures very easily. We, especially maybe the book eaters who are a little bit sheep-alike in some ways, they congregate around charismatic central figures. Uh, And Killick's thing is that, you know, he's tried to do something different from the family, but he's instead just recreated the same patterns and he's not been able to break away from that or make anything new. And he becomes as bad or worse than what they've left behind. Uh, I think all of the families are a little bit culty, a little bit, godfather-esque in their their organization and um, they're all built every house is sort of built around each patriarch and that kind of thing i found Killick worse yes because he's full of self-delusion if nothing else we both found it so strange that he would preach human religion so did that come from eating a bible from murdering his dad like where did that come from um, i think a little bit of both he has eaten a lot of people he has an awareness of Theology, but I think for Killick specifically, it's the um, stop me. If this is, ends up being too much of a deep dive. <laughs> it's a it's a bit of a theological thing where um, he he is his father and he is himself, and he sees a resonance in that in um, the doctrine of the Trinity. 
because so not all Christians actually believe in the Trinity. You get most of them are they're, they're Trinitarians, and then you have on the other side the Unitarians. And Trinitarians think of God as being three three minds in one being almost, and that's how Killick kind of sees himself and the explanation that he gives himself. So he doesn't feel like a monster. He feels like he's divine, and and there's a precedent for that. And the precedent is this kind of religious setup, even though it's not his religion and it doesn't have anything to do with him. It doesn't matter. It's a framework that he can adopt. Um, I think a lot of kind of cults that you see set up, they don't necessarily care about the, the base religion they come from. They're just using the framework because it just works for them for, for various reasons. I found it fascinating. I'm not in a creepy way, but I'm really fascinated <laughs> by cults. I, I just like how sort of strange and weird they are. So when you yes. see him doing this, I, I I bought in so much to how creepy it was. You can sort of see Devon looking around like, this isn't normal. <laughs> and there's a couple of others. Actually, um, Arminda and Hester are both not happy with it. But most people seem to be buying into it. The fact that he calls it like, commune com- communing when he communion, yeah. communion when he eats the the person's brains it's so it's so disturbing it is but then real communion you're supposed to be eating the flesh of christ so uh i mean the the catholic belief of eucharist is a, it, it's a type of miracle where they believe that sometimes during communion the the communion rind and the wafers will transform into flesh and blood like actual flesh and blood um and that's called the miracle of Eucharist. Uh, and I have Catholic friends who've told me they've seen it happen, which I don't necessarily, <laughs> I believe they believe it, but um, I have my doubts that that actually occurs, put it that way. But the concept is still very dark. Uh, it's still very kind of weird and a little bit zombie-esque. Mm. Oh, the, this communion wafer spontaneously turned into the dead flesh of a god. Okay, we're all going to eat that now like it's nothing. <laughs> Well, when you put it like that, it doesn't seem. Maybe, maybe the commune doesn't seem. There maybe um, Killick's communion isn't quite so weird. I don't know. I think I, because I did grow up religious, and um, some things about religion I find really cool and interesting, and some of them were very weird. And um, there are some very extreme pockets of religion that you can kind of fall into. Um, I think if you ever go to a sermon where everyone's trying to speak in tongues, that's a very strange experience. Uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> I will. I will definitely avoid that then on your recommendation. <laughs> so when Salem's born, Luton's first priority is that her tongue is checked, which I assumed was to make sure that she wasn't a mind eater. But what would have happened to her if she had been? Because they can make use of men by turning them into dragons. But Salem would be interesting. She doesn't necessarily maybe have the strength to be beneficial as a dragon. She's also a girl and eligible brides are in short supply. Yeah. Um, I never sorted that out. So I went back and forth on whether mind eaters could even have book eater children. And I think in the end just didn't address it. Um, most likely she'd have been sent to live with the Raven scars because they just wouldn't know really what to do with her and would be just kind of scared to take the risk. I think. The book describes how Devon wants to do all she can to get back to Salem. She also has her own conflicting feelings about the fact that she grew up without a mother. She asks at one point, how does one give shape to absence, fill a black hole with light? 
Do her feelings towards her own mother drive her need to stay with Kai and get back to Salem? Um, I think Devon doesn't have strong feelings on her mother. I think her thing with Kai is, I don't want to say selfish, but it is centered around her needs, her need to cling to one thing that she can control and one thing that she can be. Um, even if it isn't necessarily best for Kai. I mean, she thinks it is, and it's presented that way in the story that she's definitely is trying to do what's right by him, but there's an element of her needing that identity too. Um, I think, I think she doesn't really know how to be a mother. And I think one of the things I wanted to really look at with Devon is how do you break like cycles of abuse and trauma when you don't have a good role model? And I, for me, the answer is Devon doesn't. She doesn't really succeed. She tries very hard, but she just creates her own set of problems. She needed to eat some self-help books. <laughs> if the story was to continue, do, would you envision Devon reuniting with her mother? At some point, yes, but I think the experience is not what you'd hope for. Um, when I originally planned out an epilogue, it did involve her mother. Um, so the, one of the editions has an epilogue, but it doesn't actually have Amberly in it. Um, I'd hoped that Amberly and Salem would both be in the same book, and there just wasn't enough space to address those kind of disparate plot lines. I found it quite strange that for a community that's built on this idea of family that they would separate the mother and the child so young why why did you why did why is this what they do uh, so partly it's kind of my own ideas that I find think topics that I find interesting um the the basis one of the things that that belongs in Plato's Republic when he envisioned his perfect society is that children were raised communally and not with set biological parents because he believed it would prevent nepotism and uh, corruption because he, he saw corruption as being innate to the, the family model where power is inherited from kings having children and officials are elected by you're the right person's mother, sorry, son or daughter. Um, and to him, one way to kind of stem corruption is to, to get rid of that. Um, for the book eaters, it prevents... I guess similar power grabs, you're loyal to the family, you have a family, but your family is defined in a different way. It doesn't have a family unit. Uh, your family is just everyone's a brother, a sister, an uncle or an aunt. And to not have ownership of children in that way, to kind of let them go more easily. And yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a society that they constructed because I think the book eaters thought it was logical, but they weren't good at weighing the kind of human cost of it when they built it. And then later, they just didn't care. This is a spontaneous question because it came up as we've been talking and I sort of thought about it. On page 125, this is one of Ramsey's chapters. And he talks about uh, the Flashman novel that he mm. is very fond of. And he really likes it because he says it's flavorful and fascinating and he talks about the fact that there's racism in the books and how mm. self-hate is intrinsic mm. to the entire human race so i'm kind of curious if why he would like that kind of material is that because of the kind of person that he is or would kind of racist and maybe hateful material shape him as a person as he consumes more of it 
Maybe a bit of both. Uh, the book eaters can't really afford to be racist. They don't have a big enough gene pool and they don't really think in those ways. Um, I mean, I think racism is really logical and they're very logical fundamentally on, mm. on a kind of baseline level. Um, but I definitely think that he sees is maybe like a little bit of inversion of um, the, I forget what it's called now, but like the data trope data from Star Trek where you, you always have this non-human character in sci-fi and fantasy. It's either an elf or like a Android or something who goes around saying, Oh gosh, I wish I could be like a human and understand humor. Humans are so great because they can laugh and tell jokes and like that kind of, and you never have characters going around. Gosh, I wish I could be like the humans. They have hate crime and they kill each other. Um, but that's kind of what Ramsey is going for with that scene. He's admiring the the kind of worst of humanity. Um, just, partly because I thought it was interesting and partly because I thought it suited him. And, and maybe there was a hint of that trope in the back of my mind. I definitely thought it suited him. Like I can imagine him liking that kind of stuff, especially mm. you see the journey that he goes on where he just takes a gun and just like shoots his commander. Like it's nothing. <laughs> it's just, it's, yeah. it's quite brutal when he does that. But I think that's also why we read the Flashman novels as well. I mean, I don't know if you've tried them. I'm not, a fan but there's a thrill of vicarious like oh i'm living through this incredibly terrible human being as he cheats lies and um sleeps his way through society so <laughs> i haven't read them but one of my friends is a big fan of them yeah i think they can be fun but th- there is an element of definitely vicariousness where we're, we would never dare be like that ourselves but we will watch other people do that and with Devin as well um I would never go around just like murdering 50 people and burning down mansions but it's interesting to watch her do it when Hester comes along Hester and Devon share an attraction to the point where Hester points out that she had to get shot just to get Devon to touch her was it important to you to include queer representation it was and it wasn't, um, which I know is a weird sounding answer, but I never, I could never see Devon as anything other than basically lesbian. I don't think it would ever make sense for her to be straight. And just when she kind of arrived as a character, she had these traits and that was the sense of her. Um, and I guess I don't see it as representation in the sense that representation to me feels like um Oh, I'm trying to think of a good example. So my son's school does this thing called reverse inclusion where they bring um, children from mainstream schools to his special school and they spend time there rather than sending children from the special school to take a day in the mainstream mm-hmm. classroom. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, it's, it's about normalizing that. It, but when you send us, when you send a child from a special needs school to mainstream school, you make them feel othered. Um, and when you bring in mainstream children to a special school, you make the children feel normalized in a way. And I guess what I was trying to get at basically is I didn't see Devin as representation because I don't see her as like a queer person in a straight world. It's just like she she is queer. And most I think a lot of people are if given the chance and the space. Um, and it's just a part of the world and she is just a person in it and she just has those feelings and she just is that way. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Um, it's yeah <laughs> but also she's been treated badly by men yeah so that doesn't stop a lot of, a lot of women <laughs> has to be said true true so Devon's on the run with Kai mm. and we know she's running because her husband died and she took her son mm. 
You lead us to believe that her brother Ramsey is chasing her, but on the train we learn that she's working with him. So was this always your intention or did this develop as you wrote the book? Uh, it was my intention to have your perceptions on Devon change um, basically every chapter for the first half or something. So the the past timelines gives t- context, but the kind of present day timeline is all about shifting the ground underneath your feet as you read Devon, you think you know her and then she's different. And that hopefully make it hopefully changes how you see her as the story goes. So um, instead of wondering like, Oh, how did she get to this point where she is at the start with Kai and they're hiding in that room and stuff, you start wondering, okay, I understand why she hates these people. What, what would make her work with them? Uh, and I think playing that guessing game is entertaining for the readers. Uh, and to kind of quote Jean Wolfe, the goal is always to give the reader a good experience I was definitely surprised when you found out that they were working together. A good surprise, though. I was not expecting it. We find out that it was Kai that killed his father. So was it always Kai? Or did you have another version where it was actually Devon that killed him? Um, I think it was always Kai. Because um, for me, the moment is as much as anything else. It's about Devon's failure to protect Kai from using his own abilities. Um, so the the one the thing that hurts him most really is feeding on other people and not having redemption. And um, when she's not able to stop him doing that, either for his dad or for Ramsey, that's kind of a failure for Devon, both of those events. Because he literally is becoming like the people who persecute her. Um, he's literally becoming more monstrous <laughs> Not to defend it, but I think his dad was asking for it. It (laughs) Definitely. The world is better off without him in it, for sure. When Devon is about eight years old, she stumbles across a trespasser on the property, although she doesn't really understand what he is exactly. And it turns out he's a journalist, which she has no idea what that is. And he's trying to find out information on the families. I got the impression from this that it meant that maybe the families were not quite as well hidden as we might have expected. So do some people in towns around them know of them? Apart from the one family that we know about that has the estate with all of the like illegal farmers on it. Yeah, so I think some people have a sense that there's something wrong. Um, the trafficked, the trafficking victims who work on one of the um, manors, is it? Easterbrook, yeah. Um, they probably have a sense there's something not quite right, but they're not in a position to say anything. Uh, from from Manny, the thing with the families is like his passion project, the kind of wild idea that nobody else believes and until he disappears. <laughs> um, oh, hello, Gwen. Sorry, there's <laughs> a dog at my elbow. And it, I didn't ever get, I mean, I can't write it at the moment, but... If I wrote a sequel in future, my intention is that it actually opens with the human protagonist, the one of the kind of police officers who arrives at Jaquare House in time to see bodies disappear in a weird way that can't be explained. But, you know, there's no evidence left behind. Um, so there is an awareness from definitely people. And I think it's kind of growing. It's going to get harder and harder for them to hide in a modern world. 
Um, I spent way too long Googling whether or not there was CCTV in Newcastle train station at that exact mm-hmm. year. <laughs> Uh, because it would have been very awkward. And obviously that did make a fuss. Like people will have seen that and it does draw a lot of attention. So Devon took Manny to meet Uncle Ike and then Manny gets sent to another family where he spends about 14 years being experimented on. And it felt like he was being enslaved, albeit not necessarily treated badly by the end. With Devon's help, he escapes. Mm -hmm. But why did he not try and escape before? Uh, Manny was under more intensive kind of lock and key when he was he first arrived with the Raven Scars, um, and later he received an, an injury deliberately inflicted, which basically made him disabled. Um, it really injured one leg, uh, so he has a kind of walking stick, I think, in the by the time Devon meets him again. But also, he's just getting on a bit. I mean, he's kind of early forties when Devon meets him, so he's into his sixties um, by the time. She catches up with him again and he's not in great health. He's surrounded by people who are who've psychologically kind of beaten him down a bit and physically can just outmatch him. Any of the, the children in that household could give him a thrashing. Uh, so he didn't really have a good shot. And if he ever got it wrong, he would, you know, not survive. They wouldn't give him a second chance. I think for Manny, it was just about he survived in the way that he knew how um, with the odds that he felt comfortable with. The excerpts at the beginning of the chapters imply that he released his book after escaping. So is this correct? Yes. I can't remember if I referenced in the epilogue. I think I do briefly. But basically, he finishes his book and he does publish it. Um, and probably no one takes it seriously, but it's out there. <laughs> Would you read the book, do you think? Um, I don't know. If I saw it, maybe. <laughs> is there a theme or a character that you edited out of the book? Yeah, there were quite a few characters. Salem was in it originally as a, a teenager who, um, when Devon goes back for her, she's not pleased to see her mother. She doesn't see her as a rescuer. She sees her as a kidnapper who's ruined her life kind of vibe. It's very different from her, the relationship with Kai. Uh, Theme-wise, one of the things I wanted to bring into the book more originally um, was a way of talking about human trafficking in the UK. Um, and it was both extremely depressing and extremely diverting like it would have changed the course of the novel um and i don't think it was actually the right medium for that discussion um but there was more on it originally and just the the sheer industrial scale of what goes on in the uk um with that but it just didn't fit very well i suppose um and i didn't know what to do with it as a storyline that that would have done justice and not been exploitive or titillating so i've left it for in case someone else can handle it better does Devon ever find her way back to Salem? That's I do envision her doing that. Um, in the original plan, she definitely comes back and finds uh, a lot a lot of the things she doesn't expect, like the marriage system has been changed. Luton's had some growth as a character and has actually been a halfway decent father. And Salem is not unhappy with her life, and that makes for some very awkward situations and choices for Devon. What was the thing you were going to say earlier? Oh, that was the theme um, that I left out, basically, the, the stuff with human trafficking. Ah, okay. Um, which didn't make it into the book for loads of reasons. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. What do you have planned for the future? 
So I think, as I mentioned before, I can't do much with Devon's world at the moment for a whole variety of reasons. I think Tor was basically afraid that I would get stuck in this kind of Devon and Hester Dresden Files type adventure series, which they didn't want for me. And I do agree with them, actually. I think that can be a kind of career trap unless it's something you want. So the next book is different, very different in tone. I hope that readers will still enjoy it. It's a little lighter, a little bit more humor. I really miss writing books that aren't quite so serious. Um, and it's set in a kind of 1960s post-war Hong Kong um, with in the walled city with the main character who's an exorcist and another character who's a ghost. Well, that sounds quite intriguing. <sighs> Thank you. Hopefully it will be. We'll see. Where can people go to support you and find out about future plans and announcements? Uh, I don't know about support. I guess I'm on the usual social media channels. Um, I have a website, which is just my name, sunnydean.com. And um, on that, I have a dog letter that people can sign up for. And a dog letter is like a regular newsletter, except it's not regular and there's no news. You just get pictures of my dog, Gwen, who's a a dachshund, which is a sausage dog, um, just infrequently. And then like twice a year... (laughs) some book news because I can't be bothered to do a proper newsletter and book news is very infrequent. So um, other than that, I think, yeah, I'm just on Twitter. I'm on Instagram and kind of there. I try to keep my head down and not start fights um, because that makes my agent sad and my start <laughs> fights on the internet. <laughs> so. We will put all of your information, your website, your Twitter and your Instagram in the episode description so that all of our listeners will be able to come and find you. And see wholesome dog content. Thank you. That's very kind. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Sunny. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast for more book-based content. And if you're liking what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. Also, check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. See you again next time and check us out wherever you get your podcasts. She's been Lauren, I've been Charlotte, and today we've been turning pages with Sunny Dean. Mm-hmm.